All right, everyone, let's get started. My name is Steve House. I'm one of the co-founders of Uphill Athlete, and I'm looking forward to hosting a, a, a talk today with my fellow co-founder, Scott Johnston, and my former coach as well for a long time, and our master coach, uh, Sam Naney. And one of the things that's going to be really interesting about this is the kind of history of, of Scott and Sam and how they how they work together. So, so Scott, why don't you sort of introduce what you're going to talk about and tell us a little bit about Sam. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. And <clears throat> welcome, Sam. Um, this is our first ever attempt at coach interviews. So we'll see how this goes. We'd like to do this sort of thing with all of our coaches because they've all got great stories to tell. And, you know, we've all known each other a long time and had a lot of shared experiences. And so I think it's, it's valuable because I don't think there's much of that that sort of connection in most of the coaching organizations that we know of. So I think it's kind of nice that we can show a little of the history here. Plus, we're going to be talking today about the, the some of the evolution and um, developments of the main training um, theories and ideas that you've read about in our books and on our website. But so with me today is Sam Naney. We're here in the Uphill Athlete World Headquarters gym. Um, we are not social distancing, but Sam and I are in a, what do we call a COVID pod, I guess. Or, so we're, um, that, go back to that other picture though, Steve. I got to make this Oh, comment. sorry. <laughs> I actually did not so, mean to. Um... Oh. There we go. So uh, this picture was taken at a uh, November early season ski race, I don't know, probably 15 years ago or something like that. Oh, it was like seven years ago. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, you were still in high school 15 years ago. That's <laughs> exactly. right. So uh, anyway, so my wife took one look at this picture and said, oh, that's a great picture. You look like you're 12. And Sam looks like he just stepped out of GQ magazine. <laughs> so <laughs> aspirationally. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a little. So I've been, I've probably been slaving over a hot wax bench all day trying to make sure uh, Sam's skis are fast and hence my somewhat disheveled look. Uh, this is a post-race picture from when, uh, some, one, some race that we did, and it, from the glow on Sam's face, I'd say he won the race. Um, anyway, what, uh, what Sam and I won, we've known each other since, actually since Sam was about 15 years old um, in high school. I wasn't his coach at that time. Um, but after Sam returned from his uh, stint at uh, Dartmouth College, he, I did start working with him as a coach. And I think we have some, some of the story we want to relate today, I think will be helpful for people to understand where a lot of these training ideas came from. I know most people are already well aware of Steve's and my connection. I mean, we've talked about our my coaching of Steve and the development of some of those training ideas many times over. Um, one of the, the things that we know about coaching and one of the reasons we are so we stress the importance of coaching is that the coach-athlete relationship is a rather intimate one. You get to know the person quite well. Um, you And especially in my case where I'm actually standing beside these guys watching them train I can make you know, judgments about, oh, we should try that, or we should do it this way, because I'm getting almost immediate feedback. Um, but anyway, I'm gonna turn it over to Sam to talk a little bit about how we first got together and when he approached me and started asking about training. Uh, yeah, um, so I, yeah, so raced, uh, grew up here in the Methow Valley and racing as a junior and in Nordic skiing. And, and Scott, you moved here, I think I was maybe, 16 or 17 and helped out a little bit on the ski team and we interacted just a bit uh, before I went off to college and then after my college racing career I wanted to try to make a go of it as a elite level skier uh, in the post-collegiate on the post-collegiate circuit and uh, managed to in the first year or so out of college uh, I was coaching myself and, and was able to, to bungle it pretty well. And within a year, get myself pretty overtrained just in making all the classic mistakes. Uh, I, I sort of, I had, I, I led myself to believe that I had a level of fitness that could sustain uh, a lot of hard training and, and really make a big step upward, given that I was basically able to be doing it full time versus in college. 
Um, and I, I put myself into a really deep hole. And, uh, and so that was when and I ended up reaching out to you uh, at the end of that first year out of college, uh, realizing I was sort of at the bottom of the barrel. And uh, I knew that you had been working with a lot of other juniors and you had a, a deep knowledge of training and just had, had that trust in what you were able to offer. We started communicating time I was living in Montana so we're just emailing back and forth and then ended up coming back here to to work with you directly um, yeah and I remember those some of those early conversations really distinctly Sam um, I mean when Sam and we get we get a fair number of inquiries from folks who have managed to overtrain themselves and as you probably know we've written extensively both on the website and in the books about the phenomenon of overtraining it's one that is glossed over I think way too much in endurance sports um, I would consider myself quite knowledgeable. I've dealt with a number of overtrained athletes, including myself. I've managed to overtrain a couple of athletes, including myself. So I've learned a lot of lessons over, you know, 25, 30 years of dealing with what, how to deal with overtrained athletes. Um, the bad news for most overtrained athletes is by the time they recognize they're overtrained and they come to somebody like me to ask for help, they are beyond help. Well, unfortunately well and you feel yeah i mean that's the it's in some ways it makes it if you've experienced it yourself uh maybe even a couple of times uh then it's it's easier to sort of diagnose those symptoms when somebody comes to you but you know the the challenge with it is that it's often really insidious you know you feel your, your training is going along and you see that you're putting up bigger numbers of you know volume or intensity or maybe even prs and everything's going great and great and you think gosh i'm really absorbing this well and you know and, and then there's this precipice you know because you have this sort of superhuman sense and it's not you're ignoring those signals that say maybe you should you know, balance your training with recovery uh but uh yeah it's 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 easy to ignore those signals particularly when you don't have any sort of objectivity in looking at it exactly and, and i really think what you know so my recommendation I, I won't go into the too much detail about overtraining because we spend so much time on the website talking about it but so my immediate recommendation to Sam which is the same recommendation I've given to every overtrained athlete is stop stop <laughs> doing whatever you're doing which is an incredibly hard thing for an athlete to hear because they realize when they stop training they're going to begin to lose fitness so uh, but that was my first recommendation to Sam and that was three weeks before national championships. Yes, it was, that's not a great time to have to pull the plug on your training. Um, but he was so overcooked that you know, his national championships were not gonna go well. We could be pretty sure of that. Um, shortly after that, Sam moved back to his hometown and I began to work with him on a daily one-to-one -one basis. And one of the very first things that we discovered, and I think this was in a, a good lesson for folks is, so Sam was competing at quite a high level nationally. And I suspected um, that he was aerobically deficient. Now that's another term along with overtraining that you've probably seen that we've written extensively about in the books, website, aerobic deficiency syndrome is something that can exist even in a quite high level athlete. So we discovered Sam's aerobic deficiency with a couple of very simple tests. Some of these tests we talk about in the book. Um, and I said, okay, there, here's where we start. I mean, in, in, and so for someone like Sam, especially who's at a fairly high level, this was like having to go back to nursery school. I mean, it's like, okay, you need, you're not ready for Shakespeare. You need a remedial reading lesson here. And so I think we spent two years roughly yeah. trying to, you know, to move the needle and get his aerobic capacity up to where it needed to be to be to, to try to compete at the level he he was competing at which pretty much meant no real fun sexy hard training it was all base training for him um, but then once we got that in place things turned around I think for you yeah I mean, but the, and that was the hard thing is because I think there was I didn't recognize it because I didn't really know. I think something that's not atypical with junior athletes in, in any sport, particularly endurance sports, um, and then, you know, as getting older, is you, you sort of just follow along with what you're told, basically, uh, whether through coaches or just, you know, sort of group think when you're, when you're training with a team or other training partners, you know, you're all kind of pushing one another and it's, it's easy to not, 
necessarily pay attention to what you as an individual are needing or maybe lacking. Um, so I didn't, I didn't have a good recognition that I was, that I was not aerobically fit. I just assumed that I was because I was, you know, competing in Nordic skiing and I that had good results. Um, and so it, it, it took some time even after we had, so like you had been, you know, telling me and, and trying to convince me like, no, actually you're, you're, you've got a big gap in your fitness. Uh, certainly for me to realize that the types of training that I felt I should be doing at that point in my career were just not going to be practical, like going out and doing hard intensity training like I knew other competitors were out doing, or um, as you say, like the, the sexy, hard, complex workouts were just not going to provide the gains to me versus going and doing several hours at or below the aerobic threshold and just building that base. Um, I didn't understand that that base was as important as it was, and I didn't understand that I didn't have it at that point. Yeah, and it was, you know, this is something, Sam, go for Steve. Uh, a question there. Um, a couple of questions. One, one I would like to know, I think people would be interested to know, specifically what were the things that signaled that you were going off the precipice, Sam? I mean, was it something that you were seeing, or Scott, was it something, was it numbers? Was it, was it, a, was it a, was it a feeling? And then the other thing I'd like to hear you talk about, Sam, for a second is, is how that experience has helped you in your own current coaching position as an uphill athlete. Yeah. yeah. When I, so if I think back at the, the, the year that I trained uh, and basically coached myself prior to reaching out to Scott, um, I was doing a lot of a lot of volume, you know, as so I knew like, okay, volume is really important. I need to be doing, you know, three to four hour uh, long trail runs, lots of volume during the week. The, I'd say the biggest mistake I made, and I think this is sort of the classic mistake that, that most athletes make when they push themselves into an overtrained state, is I was blending a lot of volume and a lot of intensity. So I was, I was doing, I was doing the work on the volume end. I, and I, th I, you know, I was monitoring my heart rate. I had a I had a decent idea of where I needed to be training at, at a low intensity, uh, but it was still fatiguing with the volume. And then I would turn around and I'd go to a hard intensity workout. And, and my base just wasn't robust enough to be able to handle that at that point in my life as a you know, 19 year old. Um, and so again, as I said earlier, like for a time I felt great and I was really, uh, really excited about how I was able to be doing a lot of training and, and, through a good part of that summer, I was seeing personal records on various little time trials and hills and things. Um, and then by the time the fall came around, I think I just, I was having trouble recovering and, and, and the way that showed up would be like my times would drop on certain workouts. Uh, I would be just tired all the time, you know, and, and, and I, you know, for so long, I just chalked it up to, oh, I'm, I'm training a lot. That's why I'm tired. Uh, but, but I think really the, the, the main indicator for me, and again, I don't think this is, I think this is often where it comes up for people was, uh, the, the truly objective marker of showing up to the first couple of races that season, which are in the late, late fall and, and just being out of the mix totally. Uh, you know, the, the, my results in those races didn't line up with where I felt I should be based on the training load and, you know, and I would rest and I would show up to the next race and think, okay, now it'll be good because I've rested. And, and it was still just a total flop. I, you know, I pushed the accelerator and you just hear a sputter. Um, and so that, you know, that for me was at that point, obviously, I mean, I was cooked. I, I, I had already gone over that cliff, but that was the, uh, that was, those were the, the main signals like, oh, I'd, I'd done something bad. Uh, and that's when I reached out to Scott, you know, and I think that's, Again, it's why, you know, in hindsight, it all makes sense, but it's, it's really tough if you're, not, if you're not able to be observing the training load as it's occurring, uh, then you're just setting yourself up to, you know, wait until that main indicator really tells you you're cooked. And I think, you know, to your, to your second question, Steve, like what I try to think about when, you know, when we're coaching athletes is whether it's using things like training peaks where we can attempt to apply some sort of objective measure to the training load each workout or, and I think personally more importantly is just having communication and creating a level of uh, confidence between the coach and the athlete to where when I ask somebody a question, how'd you feel today? You know, which 
I'm sure to, <laughs> to my athletes, they, they feel like it's just a broken record because that's usually the question that I ask them for a workout. But, but what I want to receive in return is like, well, I, I felt amazing or uh, I, I felt like I couldn't get out of first gear. You know, it just some, those little indicators that when you start piling them up into a data set can give you uh, a better big picture of what the trends are. Uh, and it's, and it's evaluating that in some, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to be one single workout. It's just going to be learning the athlete and kind of reading what their capabilities are and where they're at. And I think what really came to evolve with my relationship with Scott and how we were able to kind of have this long-term coach athlete relationship that worked is that he came to know me, uh, really, really well, you know, and, a big benefit was that we were working side by side and we'd show up to, to practices, to training sessions together. And I mean, there were days I know where you saw me within the first five minutes of starting a workout and you'd pull the plug. Like, I can tell you're not, you don't have it today. It's not, it's not a good day to train. And I think those are the, you know, we can, we can get a pretty good feel for that even just through, you know, dialogue, you know, in, in, in text form with athletes, but it was for us, it was particularly robust because we can see that in person. Yeah, that's great. I think that answer is one of the questions we got about, you know, kind of the, the balancing the art and science of, of training and coaching with the subjective and, and the, and the objective. Scott, can you tell me a little bit about what, what you saw at the end of those two years where you felt like you could start doing some of these other more, um, as you call it, sexy training methods? Yeah. Exactly. So <clears throat> this is, again, something we stress a lot in the book. I know it, it can sound a little bit like the broken record of aerobic base, aerobic base, aerobic base. But for all these endurance sports, it's the key. And without that base, trying to move into advanced levels of training or what we might call event-specific type training runs at a huge risk of putting you in the same kind of place Sam was in. You know, at, at very best, it's gonna produce mediocre results, and at worst, it's gonna uh, cause you to get overtrained. So once we began to see, and it didn't happen fairly quickly, but, but I, I think once we saw, the first year Sam was racing, his results were, you know, after working with me, um, and we just spent that time working on base training. It was, results were not impressive. You know, they were, they were okay, but we didn't expect them to be impressive because you can't race off of base training. I mean, this is something we stress a lot that that's, all this aerobic base training we keep talking about, that's, that base is there to support training that prepares you for your event. So if all you've done is base training, and then you go into an event that, like cross-country skiing that has a lot of very high-intensity uh, work during a race, you're not gonna be well-prepared for that high-intensity. So we were only able to do a little bit of high-intensity training because I didn't wanna risk putting Sam over the edge again, and we wanted to really focus on that base. But then after a couple of seasons of this, it was really obvious that we, made a huge breakthrough in Sam's um, base level of fitness, aerobically especially. And then we began to introduce some novel, some, we, we, we used, of course, some conventional training methodologies out of, you know, from cross-country skiing and running and that sort of thing. But one of the things that I think has been really um, a founding principle of certainly my uh, coaching philosophy, and I think it's sort of morphed now into and been absorbed into uphill athlete, is that we're we're very willing to look outside of our own little sphere of uh, knowledge and influence, see what what goes on in other sports, see how um, you know we can learn from that, we can experiment, and we can take stuff. You know, we've used ideas that came out of swimming and rowing and cycling and running, all those other endurance sports that are much better studied than obviously even cross-country skiing and certainly much better studied than any of these other mountain sports that we tend to focus on now. And some of those ideas were, I have to say, kind of radical at the time. Um, maybe you want to show the, that picture, the, the hyperoxic little video, Steve, if we can. Pull that up. This yeah. is uh, what Scott is talking about, hyperoxic training. Let me play this. So hyperoxic training means tra training with way more than atmospheric levels of oxygen. 
And we did this by putting an oxygen welding tank in my van, running um, a boom out the side, and then supplying oxygen from that tank into a mask. So this isn't actually Sam, it's another athlete uh, I work with at the same time. Um, so it's a little hard, it's kind of grainy, I'm sorry it's not so good, but so the reason we tried this, and it actually worked amazingly well. We were going really fast. Yeah, that was <laughs> skiing, that, was, that guy was skiing uphill, like moderate grade, at about 20, 25 plus miles per hour uphill. I mean, that's pretty hard to do even on a bicycle. And not get run over by the yeah, car. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, notice that he has to get out of the way for an oncoming car here. Um, and not get run over by your and, car. And Mike, I'm over in the ditch trying to keep from, yeah, giving him a little room. Um, but anyway, the, the rationale behind this was, so these, this guy and Sam, their specialty was an event that lasts about three minutes. So it's really high intensity. It's called the sprint in cross-country skiing. And so they're going to be using, you know, from our books, we talk a lot about the different fiber types, fast-twitch, slow-twitch fibers. Well, in, the, in an event that lasts three minutes, the fast-twitch fibers and the endurance of those fast-twitch fibers is really critical. So that's an important thing to, to think about when how can we improve endurance of fast-twitch fibers? Well, we have to be able to use them. But normally, if you're using those fast-twitch fibers, they get fatigued in you know, a few seconds, you know, between 10 and 30, 45 seconds. And those fibers that you want to be training, they're, they're done. And they might need many minute, minutes of rest. They might even need you know, a full day to recover because they're not very well uh, endurance adapted. So I had this idea that, okay, why don't we just let you guys breathe tons of oxygen. You can go really hard for a long time that way without fatigue. Um, so they're gonna be able to use these, this fast twitch, these fast twitch fibers that generally can only be trained for maybe a few minutes in one workout. They were doing as much as 39 minutes. These, we were doing three 13 minute uphill repetitions this way, so they had 39 minutes of very heavy training stimulus to those fast-twitch fibers that you couldn't get otherwise in a workout. It might take you several months to accumulate that much volume but of it was, high intensity training. It, but I think what the interesting thing was in, in experiencing it was that at the time, like when we were doing those workouts, it felt awesome. I mean, you know, as, as you get like, it felt like doping in a sense because you, you, you were skiing, you know, we knew how fast we were skiing, but it felt sustainable in the way that, you know, just kind of a fun, fast level effort would feel in normal times, but we were moving really, really well. Uh, but the ensuing days, I mean, I would, you'd just be totally spanked. Yeah. Because, because <laughs> you're out. basically like you're overcoming the, you know, the, the inhibition that, that, that the brain is the central governor of your workload. You're, you're able to, in some ways, kind of bypass that by giving it the signal that it's got enough oxygen to do a higher level of work than it's trained to do. And, but then you remove the oxygen, you end the workout, and the recovery is, you know, suddenly you have to compensate for this much higher workload than you've been used to doing. So it was, it was a really taxing workout in, in terms of, you know, making sure we recovered well from it. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the effect of it was was equally valuable because again you're learning this economy of move of movement and being able to ski in in this case being able to ski really well with good technique at a very high speed um, and I think you know thinking about what what we've tried to do in, in sort of taking that concept and, and what I've tried to think about in, in like well how can I apply that experience to working with other athletes is a concept that's that's really well used in in running training um, would be something like downhill speeds. So you take a, you take an environment where your, you know, gravity is now working more in your favor and you, know, you can train short, short bursts of speed, 10, 15 seconds running downhill, working really well on good technique and form. So you're, you're training that economy, you're training the quick cadence, but you're not having to at the same time overcome a, an, an additional applied load of, of gravity or even flats. Uh, so it's, it's, it's similar, but much more approachable than putting a, a welding tank in the back of a car and, 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 and skiing along or, or running along behind it. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was wild. It was a fun way to train. And, and we saw tremendous results from that. I'll just say that that season was probably that guy who you saw skiing. That was his best world cup season. And, um, and I think in Sam, it's put Sam on the podium at us national championships. So it was a very good training methodology. I mean this, but I would caution people, this is not something you need to, don't try this at home. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's something that only a very advanced athlete. It's a little bit dangerous to do that outdoors. I mean, where I, but I'll give you an idea how I got this, where, where this came from. I was reading a research study on hyperoxic training for cyclists. And there was someone who had done this exact same thing, basically having stationary bikes set up for professional cyclists to train in a hyper, hyperoxic state. And they were... Um, they saw massive in performance gains. And I thought, how could we do that? Well, you, you know, stationary, we can't do stationary skiing. So that's when I started thinking, well, okay, we'll just throw the welding tank in the car um, and drive around with it. Luckily, we have some pretty not very heavily traveled rooms or roads around here. So we were able to do that. We did um, get some strange looks, though. Yeah, very yeah, strange looks. A couple of people who didn't want to move over. <laughs> but that was an example of using this... Uh, sort of looking to other sports, looking to see how other people are, are maximizing their training. Um, but, and so with regards to that, you know, we've talked, we also talk um, a lot about muscular endurance training. And this is something that has become a mainstay of the uphill athlete training methodologies at, at every level for, and for every type of athlete. And we have different types of muscular endurance training routines that we will apply to different folks. Um, so is so when we when I was looking at muscular endurance, my first experiment with it was happened in about 1992 when I was helping a guy prepare for the 92 Olympics. Scott, before we go to muscular endurance, can, uh, there was a good question here uh, about is this is this L2 doping training methodology that you've been discussing? Is it is it specific to sprinters and higher speed events, or is it also something that applies to more uh, longer endurance athletes? That's a good question. It, it, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's a good question. And I think one thing I was actually going to say about it is like we, we tried it a handful of times, but we didn't, we didn't necessarily stick with that method as a long-term training tool. Like it was, it was one of those, like Scott was talking about, like an opportunity to try a method that that could tackle a certain problem we were trying to work out which is how can we how can we train at a more sports specific speed at, with a higher volume of that work because i mean that if you if you boil down training the whole idea is to try to gain as you know specific training and try to do a, a high measure of work from which you can recover and 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 adapt to it and you know, in using it, we saw that it, it could be really beneficial, but we also saw that the recovery from that sort of load was, was pretty high and that we could use different training methods that were more sustainable in a whole block of, of training. Um, but I think to, the, to that question that, that was asked, like whether it's um, sprinting versus, you know, longer, dis longer distance events, having that economy of movement is really valuable. And there are a lot of ways you can train economy of movement at high speed, uh, short sprints and, and things like that. Um, but I think they're, they're definitely applicable to long, to long distance events because you, the, the objective is still to move as fast as possible over whatever given distance you're trying to do. Um, so regarding that same question, I'll elaborate a little more, sort of my take on it was recall that we, we've, we use a periodized approach to training. So this was training that occurred, I think we probably did a total of four of these workouts spread out over between 10 to 14 days apiece in October and early November, just before we entered the racing season. This was not something we were doing in base training. Um, this was after these guys had, you know, enormous base training or, or base capacity so they can handle something like this. And even then it was really hard for them. So this wouldn't be something I would suggest you do on a daily or a weekly basis. Um, it's something that will bring a person up to peak form. We just, we found out really well and pretty rapidly if they're, if they're prepared for it. Um, I would say that it could have some benefits in, um, for uh, you know, long and long duration events, you know, events lasting more than a few minutes. Um, up, you know, by, by, so remember, we talk about endurance. An endurance event is anything that lasts more than two minutes. 
because that's when the aerobic system becomes the dominant energy production source. So that's why we call long, those events endurance. So, but anything from two minutes to two and a half hours or four hours, 10 hours, whatever. Yes, I think it could have some benefit, but I think there's easier ways to do this. And one of the ones that we talk a lot about, it's in, in the books, is our hill sprints. So you can develop a lot of, for, for mountain runners, let's say, or ski mountaineers, they could do a very similar thing by doing these shorter duration, maximal effort uphill sprints um, with long recoveries in between them and get you know, most, almost all the benefit I'm sure that they could get from something like this without having to go to the, the uh, extent of you know, all the, the extra work and effort it was to, to do that kind of training. I think it's, this is, we're, when we're talking about this kind of training, we're like the difference between, you know, in these sprint races, but you know, the, the top three or four guys are all going to be within a half a second of each other. So you know, we're talking about, you know, the less than 1% difference for these athletes. So it's not really something that most people be needing to, to mess with. Does that cover that? Should we move on to muscular endurance? That's a great point. And, and Dirk Friel had a point in the comments that uh, he has trained on his bike with a small O2 tank and a camelback to try to get to sea level because he's living, mm -hmm. uh, lives over in Boulder and he's for, for cycling training. You know, he's just trying to, he's try, actually trying to just get down. So that would be a, another similar type of application of this type of, of sort of outside the box uh, thinking. So it's a, a great example. So sorry, yeah, I, I cut you off, you're about to segue into a different topic of muscular endurance. Yeah, so I, I think that covering, talking a little bit about muscular endurance and the development of the kind of the uphill athlete muscular endurance philosophy that has, again, like I said earlier, it's, it's kind of become a mainstay, um, you know, along with this whole aerobic base thing, um, that muscular endurance has become pretty much a mainstay of the way we train people for every event. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the history. I mentioned that, I briefly alluded to that in one of the talks Steve and I had earlier, but I'll mention it again so that we have this continuity or history here. And I started, I messed around with muscular endurance training when I was helping a guy prepare for the 92 Olympics in cross-country skiing. And I got these ideas from a speed skating coach on how they were training speed skaters at that time. And it was these incredible, this was CrossFit before CrossFit. Um, and they were really demanding high intensity circuit style workouts. And once again, these were something that was done in the late preparation period, right before competition. And so in the fall, we would do this type of training. And this guy had tremendous results, had the best American results that year at the Olympics. And so I saw that it was a really powerful training stimulus. I saw, I did the workouts along with him so I could get an idea um, of how they were affecting him. And I, I had huge improvement in my own performance and I went, whoa, there's something going on here. So, <clears throat> Again, we were applying this on top of really big aerobic bases. Like, you know, guy, we were, I was, and he was too. We were training close to a thousand hours a year. So that's a lot of high volume of aerobic work that we're doing. So we could do that type of training. So anyway, I, after that, I started messing around. When I started coaching juniors, and then when I started working with Sam, I started, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, excuse me, let me back up. When I was working with Steve, he was doing the same type of muscular endurance work that I had used in some of my training for climbing, especially before I went to K2, um, of hiking steeply uphill with a heavy pack on, which is one of our forms, one of our more popular forms of doing muscular endurance training for, for mountaineers and alpinists. And I knew of a hill near where Steve lived that was a perfect thing. It was like 30% or 40% gradient, very steep, um, straight up the fall line. And he could fill water jugs. You might have seen pictures in our, in our book or on the website of Steve filling up water jugs in the river at the bottom, carrying the water jugs to the top, dumping them out, running back down. And as I recall, that climb was, I think, 1,700 feet. And there were days when you were putting in, you know, six or 7,000 feet with, you know, 30, 40 pounds on your back. Yeah, I, I actually remember 10, and I think I'd, I could look at my log, but I think there were bigger days, like 10, 12,000 feet. Yeah. 
And so anyway, that was one evolution of that muscular endurance idea. And then when I started working with the skier, junior skiers and Sam, I wanted to revisit that sort of speed skater circuit style training that I had seen great results with, you know, 12, 10, 12, 10 years before or so. And um, so Sam and I worked on a similar type of a muscular endurance, high intensity circuit style thing that we did right here in this gym. Um, much to Sam's chagrin, because uh, I, I loved it. <laughs> it's just really hard. And there was one particular workout where Sam had to go outside and puke, and then my dog was out there eating it. I thought it was. I thought it was a sign of success. I just got so blasted, and yeah, yeah, the dog ate the vomit. It was gross. Uh, but but yeah, I mean that was, and and I think it that kind of spoke as well to like, learning how to apply these concepts to a sustainable training like I was I was approaching those workouts at basically maximal intensity and and each you know we did it in a kind of a circuit so we'd go from you know box steps to jumping back and forth over a bar I mean some similar exercises that we prescribe now but but I was going as hard as I could every single one and just trying to get to the end of the circuit and I would you know they're just it wasn't about sustainability there you know it didn't, it felt just like, again, a maximal effort. And, you know, we've since sort of evolved our learning to know that, you know, the idea in that is to create a fatigue resistance in the fibers, not to take them very, up, you know, up to the maximal edge and then see if you can push them over. Um, and so that was, yeah, it was. And that's one of those kind of things that I think, you know, we're not afraid to, to say, hey, we were playing around, we were experimenting with stuff here, and yeah, we made probably made some mistakes, did some things wrong, but we learned some really valuable lessons that we've now been able to, over the last, you know, especially the last you know, 15 plus years, refine those into the systems that we use now that we see you know, stellar results from with very little you know, negative uh, consequences. And so, this whole, the, the muscular endurance um, circuit workout that we now have built into many of our training plans and is available free on the website. There's a PDF you could download right on the front page of that workout. If there's a 10 week, maybe longer, I can't remember, 10 or 14 week progression. Um, and we write about how to apply this and, and you make, make best use of it. But I think that's one of those cases. And I wanna have Steve pull up a couple of uh, other little videos of when Sam and I were playing around with some different muscular endurance workouts. Uh, we were trying to find ones that were really specific to him for his cross-country sprint racing. And um, these are some that we, that we messed with. Okay, this is one that uh, we have a, about, a, this is about on a 20%, a little over 20% gradient hill. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why these are so jerky, but anyway, Sam's doing squat jumps with me on his back and then dropping me and moving into bounding up this hill for to about 60 or 70 yards. At the top of the hill, I've placed um, a couple of hurdles that he then has to hop over and then do a few squat jumps at the top. And our idea behind that was that we could um, <laughs> gets me every time. <laughs> we even we even tried this. The, the reason why I'm on his back is that the first time we tried this, we used a 45 pound barbell with a couple of I think 45 pound plates on it, and um, then Sam would drop it, and I would be in the back to try to catch it, and it would roll down the hill and try to take me out. So I said, "Hey, this let's do something a little. I don't have we don't have to drag the barbell out to the hill that way." <laughs> and so instead, I, I acted as the, the barbell. I was heavier than 135 pounds. So. It was another instance in which anybody who came along and saw our training was wondering what we were doing yeah. out there. <laughs> Did you want the double, the, these hill sprints, the double pull? You may have seen David Gutler, video of David Gutler on the website doing um, hill sprints for muscular endurance on a ski jump outrun or he's doing it on the stairs of the ski jump. Um, and so we've, we've used these all these different ways. Here's one that we use with Sam um, specifically for double pulling. Uh, and now he's towing me. Uh, we're using a bungee. I wonder why it's so jerky. 
So Sam is pulling me with a bungee up a pretty steep hill while he's double pulling. And we would do these, these are like you know, 15 second uh, little sprints. Um, sorry for the glitchy nature. You can see how, how much energy effort he's putting into that. He's, you know, both roller skis are off the ground when he's in that full forward position. So he could put out this really maximal effort and we did a bunch of different repetitions like that. Um, I and I, you know, it's not so important. Uh, Scott, it's just your end. It looks fine here. Oh, okay, great. I'm glad the video's working better. Yeah, we just have, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere, so we don't have very good internet. Good internet. Yeah. Um, but so the reason for showing those is not to recommend that people go, you know, double pole uphill towing their friend or whatever. It's more to show that this muscular endurance concept that we rely heavily on now in our training is one that we have used and adapted and messed around with now for many years. And we find it applicable to all sorts of activities. And it's almost like you can't do it wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that, that we've talked about, and uh, I think, you know, particularly those, those videos and, and the time in which we were doing those and, and, and seeing them contribute really well was at that point where I had, like, we put in that time building the base. And, and there, I think it, it just reinforced, certainly for me at, at that point after the time that we'd spent working together and, and my training, but, and then what I've been able to take to coaching is to recognize that when, when you've built the aerobic base or you at least created a good foundation, uh, you have a level of resilience that you can start using some of these techniques and, and seeing returns from them without them totally derailing you uh, into yeah. fatigue because the base is what supports that work. And, and even, if you're, you know, even if you're experimenting with something and, and realize you need to back off, you, you can back off and recover and, and kind of regain your trajectory. Uh, but, but I think the, the mistakes that can be made, and you know, I think we've all made them, is again, like we talked about at the beginning, to try to add the, the sexy, flashy looking workouts right when you start training. To say, okay, I want to be a, you know, an X, a, a really good schema racer, a Nordic skier or runner. And, and I know that, you know, there are these hot, flashy workouts out there. So I'm going to start doing those right away because that's, what's going to make me fast. And, and, you know, there's, even if there are short-term gains involved, it just doesn't have the sustainability because that base is what allowed us to, to start throwing those at the wall and seeing what's stuck without uh, taking things off the rails. Yeah. I think we can sort of use that iceberg analogy that those, what we might call event specific training, like the hyperoxic or even some of these, some of the other work that Sam and I did. I don't think we have any video. I know we don't have any video of some of the more, some of the um, high speed strength or high speed ski workouts that we did. But a, those are the tip of the iceberg that you can see. But what's under the surface that you can't see is all of the preparation that went into getting him able to handle that type of training and that's the thing that I think where that people the mistake that people make it's it's when especially you know you see this pop in popular media all the time so somebody breaks a world record in a running race and immediately in the magazine there'll be this here's what so-and-so did in the last four weeks prepare for before they broke the world record and it'll have all these amazing looking workouts and people will immediately jump to the conclusion oh that's what allowed that person to break the world record. I'm going to go do that, those workouts because then I'll be faster too. When in fact, it was what that person, this person, the world record holder has done for the last 10 or 15 years that got them to the point where they could handle that kind of work. And most people would not be able to handle, you know, 30 200s run in, you know, 25 seconds with a 30 second rest. I mean, that's a great sounding workout for a runner to do, but most people would do that and just explode. So I think it's really important to keep this iceberg concept in, in mind, especially when you're reading popular media or you're hearing these amazing success stories is what have you done for the last 10 or 15 years that got you to a point where you could handle it? Well, and I think the other piece too, and it, it comes to my mind because I just saw one of those magazine articles we got in the mail. Like there's a, there's a misconception too, that the difference between athletes who are doing those sexy workouts and, and you, the, the, the person who's trying to aspire is, is some level of toughness. Like, Oh, well, if I'm just, if I'm just tough, like this athlete, then I can persevere through these really hard workouts. And yeah, I mean, there's certainly, 
there's, there's a degree of, you know, mental toughness you have to have just to train. But I would say there's, there's a toughness that comes from doing a lot of base training as much as doing high intensity. And I think the mistake that gets made is when somebody thinks, well, if, if I just knuckle down, then I can sustain these hard workouts and I'll see the gains like, like so-and-so, the, the high-level athlete. And, you know, what, again, kind of thinking back to, to my experience and, and as we evolved in this training, like those hard workouts, they were challenging, but they were sustainable because I could, because I had a base to support it. Uh, it was when I was trying to do them when I didn't have the base, when we, you know, when I would try to do a hard workout and it would just feel almost impossible. That was an indication I wasn't ready to do that hard training. Uh, and I think, so I think there can be, it's easy for us to mislead ourselves in thinking that it's only mental toughness that is the barrier between where we're currently at and where we can be. Uh, as opposed to thinking that, you know, you, you ratchet up your, uh, the load according to what you're able to absorb and what you're able to do. And that's a, it's a, it's a tough measure. It's a, it's a tough patience to have. Uh, but I mean, certainly the experience that, that I had in, in finally realizing that and then trying to apply it with other people. And I want to, yeah, I think it's a great point, Sam. And I want to elaborate a little bit on it because I think this is another, that, that iceberg concept um, and what Sam is just talking about, being prepared for that hard training is something that a lot of people don't get. But I want to use an, a real world example that I think often people can relate to. So you know, most people are familiar, maybe you've never run one, but the, the road marathon. And um, what I think people don't realize is the road marathon because it's a quite steady state, they're generally run on quite flat courses. And so in, in, in you know, the, the, the tempo and the heart rate, the, the, the pace, all of those are fairly steady state during a race like that, but they should be. Uh, there might be some surges here and there, but in general, these guys are gonna be running at a pretty steady pace, guys and gals. Um, <clears throat> but the interesting thing is that the road marathon is competed at or just a tiny sliver above a person's aerobic threshold. Now that term aerobic threshold should be pretty familiar to our listeners and people who've read our books. And if, so let that soak in for just a minute that these guys, I'm going to use guys here as an example because it's even more crazy. So these top marathoners are running, especially the very fast ones, are running 26 miles at a four minute and 30 second per mile pace. And they're doing that in the same metabolic state at their aerobic, their aerobic metabolism is working just like yours or mine would be working. And we might be running a four hour marathon at that pace or at that, at that same threshold. So I think it's kind of, it shows you the power of the aerobic system. The aerobic system isn't necessarily just a slow system. But if it you know, has to be trained to a very, very high level, I mean, these are professionals that have been putting in many, many years of training. Um, and they, they also do some of that crazy, sexy type training that, you know, that looks really cool. But the bulk of their training is done in that, uh, even below aerobic threshold. Because as you can imagine, for most of us, aerobic threshold training is a rather mundane pace. One that you know, won't kind of destroy our muscles. But you can imagine if you could run a, a 430 mile at your aerobic threshold and, and you thought that easy training was at aerobic threshold, you would very quickly find yourself overtraining if you trained. If you went out every day and did you know, 10 miles at four minutes and 30 seconds per mile. Um, so those top runners, they don't do much training at that aerobic threshold pace. They have to do most of their base training much slower than that or they'd end up getting overtrained. They can, uh, they can sustain that pace, again, because they've got this big base. And I think the takeaway for us with all these mountain sports that we train for, which most of which have durations that last, you know, from just a couple of hours to many hours and even more than a day, that aerobic base pace becomes the event-specific pace. Now, in Sam's case, when he was cross-country sprint racing, that aerobic base pace was a long way below his event pace that he needed to be doing in a race. So that meant we placed it, that's why we placed such a heavy emphasis on some of those high speed, that high speed type training, because we didn't, we did need to touch on it. 
But if you're going out and, you know, even if you're not training for a race, if you're going out just to, you know, get better at running three or four hours in the mountains at a time, then aerobic threshold is really your event specific training pace. And that's where you need to spend a great deal of your time. There will be a little bit additional of high intensity work, like Sam was talking about. It could be downhill sprints, it could be uphill sprints. But in general, that's why, again, that's why we put so much emphasis on the, that base training. And that it's, it's, um, it's malleable. I mean, you can, you know, just like whether it's a, a four minute race or it's a, an, an, a seven hour uh, 50 mile or 50K, you know, you can, you can increase that pace at your aerobic threshold through some of these different, you know, through some modern intensity and through just spending more time at that aerobic threshold. So you create efficiencies metabolically and muscularly, et cetera. So speed remains important in almost everything we're trying to do. We're trying to do it you know, faster for, for less effort. Um, and so there's, you know, you're, you're getting the gains not in, in, in both, in both places and, you know, in the continued aerobic based training, as well as in that selective, more, you know, kind of special training ideas. Uh, I interject here. I'd like to go back a little bit to your personal story, Sam. We've got about 10 minutes left here. Um, and we've got some pictures I'd like to make sure we get around to sharing with, and that ties directly into what you were just talking about as being a malleable athlete. So let me show some of these images and have you guys talk about them. I'll start with this, uh, this image at, uh, I believe this was at, at US Nationals. Oops, I'll share my screen, there we go. You guys wanna talk about your own journey as an athlete kind of beyond uh, through skiing and a little bit beyond and, and you as well, both of you there, that'd be good. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was U S nationals. That was my, um, that was my last year competing. Uh, and it was the U S nationals in Nordic skiing kind of serves as a, as sort of the, one of the, the bigger contributors to uh, qualification for the Olympics, the Olympic teams, uh, in Olympic years. So that was, uh, for me, that was, you know, represented sort of the last, my last opportunity to, to qualify for the games. Um, and you know and and it was it was it was a high point certainly of my of my racing career uh we had you know scott and i at that point had been working together for uh seven years or so and and you know through all these stories as you could tell like we really kind of honed in on really uh quality training and you know it was this culmination where my fitness had had ascended to such a point where we could apply training and really see the gains and, and we could apply a, a fair bit of training because I could absorb it. Um, so that was, yeah, that, that image is taken in a, in a sprint and I didn't make, I didn't make the team, but I was, you know, a couple, a couple places off from the team. For me, it was a really kind of exciting, exciting moment to see that, uh, there was a certain amount of potential realized. Um, and you know, and it was also one of those things where I, I could, I could walk away from that level of competition and, and from the sport, you know, acknowledging that I hadn't accomplished everything that I might've wanted to, uh, which I think is going to be the case with anybody who tries something at a high level. I mean, you, you're always aspirational and you're always creating a list of what you'd like to achieve. And, and rarely does that list get entirely ticked off. But, uh, but what it, what it showed for me, it was many things. One, you know, I learned such a vast amount about training, and about coaching uh, with, you know, observing and, and observing Scott and listening to him and, and really being uh, a mentee and, and, and sort of being under his tutelage and learning about, you know, what it, you know, what it takes to kind of build that, that training base long term. And so for me, it was, it was exciting in the sense that as I shifted direction, uh, I could sort of throw some of that fitness that I had into, into different pursuits um, that weren't at anywhere near that level of competition, but you know, things like trail running and well, that, ski mountaineering that, that, racing. Some of these other pictures, Scott, you guys could tell me a little bit about that. I think I see Ben here. What, what, what's, what's yeah. here? So this was at, um, uh, in, this is at Canmore, uh, Canmore, Canada, Alberta, Canada. Um, there you have a Nordic center there. That's where the 1988 Olympics were held. Um, 
which I, like Sam, missed by one spot on the team. Um, but I did compete there in some World Cup races. So they also, they have a, a man-made, a, a, a loop where they can ski on man-made snow. Actually, it's snow that they save over the summer. They pile sawdust on it so the snow doesn't melt. And then they clear the sawdust off. And we were, this was early October, I believe, when we were up there. October, yeah. We were up there for about a 10-day training camp, and there were a couple of races. And um, Sam did perform super well in those races. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about this trajectory or this career path with Sam, too, uh, relating to that picture you had up there earlier, Steve, uh, the one from the, his penultimate national, nationals where Sam made the podium here. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I've coached a number of Olympians. Um, I've coached people to podium finishes in World Cup races and, and cross-country skiing, that is, and um, even medals at World Championships. So, but I have to say that this was one of my proudest accomplishments as a coach. And I'll explain why. I mean, it was a great performance for Sam, you know, personally, but it, it for me, one of the things that it did is it validated all of these ideas that Sam and I have been developing for you know, years and years, um, you know, ideas that I'd have and then we'd refine. You know, we were spending a lot of time together, <laughs> driving around the ski races, lots of time to talk about, kick these ideas around. And, and I, don't, I don't think this will embarrass Sam when I say this, but so Sam was a guy who went through his entire college career, never even making it to the NCAA national championships. And this U.S. national championships is at a much higher level than NCAA's, uh, the college circuit. And so here's a guy who couldn't, while he was in college, go to the collegiate nationals. And here he is now competing for the Olympic team as one of the very top sprinters in the country. And I think that says a lot about, you know, obviously, you know, Sam's perseverance and his ability to, to get this job done, but also validates that, hey, we took these very specific trading ideas and used them over the course of several years. And we took this guy from what I would say would have been kind of an intermediate collegiate level skier to one of the best in the country. So... Here's me and Sam Meep testing uh, his blood lactate during the middle of an interval workout. You'll notice that's a running track behind us. We were, you, we were doing roller ski interval training on the running track so we could control the pace really closely. Is there, I think there's a one or two others here, aren't there? There's uh, one I wanted to show in terms of like <laughs> a lot of time together. I liked this picture because yeah. it was great. Yeah. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of podcasts yeah. and, and hours on the road. This is a, some history podcast we were listening to, I think. But that was also, like, I mean, hours and hours where we were just talking about training, you know, and, and, and a lot of it, I'd say, especially as time went on, it wasn't necessarily talking about my training. It was just talking about these concepts. And, you know, I was starting to coach juniors at that point. Uh, and so we're talking about, well, how do we take, you know, this method that seems to be working for me and, and translate it into something that's applicable to a 16 year old, because obviously we're not going to throw them into the deep end of the pool necessarily, but we want to, like, let's just evolve these ideas. And I feel like that was so much, at least for me, those embryonic stages of learning how to coach and, and learning how to take ideas and, and training concepts and make them applicable to a wide array of people and, and to really think about the individual and how they can respond to things. I just want to inject something real quick there because it's often a question that we've got uh, received at Uphill Athlete is how do I become a coach? And I, I want to say that that's what you just described is how you become a coach, in my opinion. Those are the best coaches that we've found. Those are the coaches that we've integrated into Uphill Athlete, the ones that have been athletes originally and kind of come up through years and years and years. It's not something I don't believe that you can learn in school. Um, there's a lot of subjective as well as objective knowledge that goes into, into becoming a coach. And I think that that's, that's an important point to, to, to take home here. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly for me, I think, you know, being able to experience those, the, the, the ups and, and, and the downs and how training worked. And, and then again, realizing that it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a manual where you just say, okay, this worked for me. Now I'm going to give you the same workout. Uh, but it's, it's recognizing sort of the core concept of it and then figuring out, okay, what does this athlete need and how can they respond to it and how can we have a good dialogue? Because again, I, I think the greatest thing I took away from this whole experience and, and Scott's and my relationship, certainly as athlete and coach, was the success of it 
came not predominantly from those workouts necessarily as much as from the rapport and the relationship that we had. So Scott knew me, Scott knew what I needed. I, you know, I felt comfortable and trusted him to communicate those things and we could adapt that training. And, you know, we could have tried a myriad different techniques and strategies, many of which would have worked that, we, that maybe we didn't. But the, but the point was, is that we were able to navigate that together and have the communication to, to see it through. And that, that's the takeaway I thought that, that I've tried to apply as a coach for sure. And Steve, there's um, that last slide you had on there with Sam um, skating uphill. <clears throat> I think that, that bears a little, this, this is another one of our uh, experiments. It's not easy to see because it's black, but Sam has a 60 pound weight vest on and he's doing these uphill sprints um, on snow. So beginning of the ski season, we're still trying to extract you know, some sort of maximal high-powered hill sprints that are very specific to his, um, to his race. And, uh, you know, I have, so in order to help Sam, it was my job to ski out to the hill with that 60-pound vest. And I could barely get it out to the, you know, I could barely stay on my skis. It was so challenging. And here, Sam was skiing up the hill with perfect form. And you can't even tell that he has a weight vest. This is actually a still. I look a little bulky. <laughs> this is actually a still from a video. And if you saw the video, you'd realize that he, you, know, you can't tell that he's got 60 pounds strapped to his body. Um, let's see. Um, I, and just lastly, I, want, I think we should um, maybe close a little bit on, the, um, on some of these other. Uh, sorry for the, you know. And I think what to back to Sam's point just about his his evolution as an athlete in into more recent years. Can you speak about that? What's this picture? Where's this from, Sam? Yeah, this is uh, last uh, last summer. Uh, my wife Allison, who's also a, a UA coach, and I uh, we we ran the Wonderland Trail, uh, which is uh, 90, 93 miles. I think around it circumnavigates Mount Rainier. And it's just a spectacularly beautiful route, and uh, we had a we had a goal of running it in a single push uh, from uh, from one point and all the way around. And this was just as as the sun was starting to set on one of the most beautiful sections of the trail. And and for me, it, it was you know one of you know the longest single run I'd done. And uh, I think you know. I, yeah, the, the evolution of myself as an athlete. I mean, when I was when I was growing up, I never liked running. <laughs> I did it. I did it because I knew I needed to, uh, but it never felt very good. And 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 you know, I, I would get feedback sometimes from from folks like, "Well, you know, you're a bigger guy. You're not really meant to be a runner. Don't worry about it." And, and to have gone from that experience to come to really enjoy running and trail running largely thanks to my wife who taught me really how to do it <laughs> uh, but then to have an experience like that where I can you know just be absolutely enthralled with you know spending tens and ten you know that long many miles out on a trail uh, and really enjoying it. I mean that was that was fed by a base of training and and really you know a a passion for training, I think. And, you know, especially now, you know, a lot of the dialogue we've had with our athletes over the last couple of months with um, COVID and, and the challenges of objectives being canceled and having to really retool uh, our thinking about what are we training for? You know, what's, what's this paradigm now when uh, we can't climb mountains or we can't run a race? And I know what my personal experience has been and, and what is, I think, really valuable to try to impart to other people is that the, the pursuit of training and trying to improve yourself in these various areas just lends this great versatility and, and opens up a lot of opportunities. And, and I came to really enjoy training for training's sake uh, because I, I enjoy the way it gives me these opportunities. I, I, I love kind of experimenting with it and seeing how it made me feel. But uh, yeah, this was, it was just such a great encapsulation of it, this run on the Wonderland. And, uh, being able to move across terrain like that was really special. Great. I think that's a, a really great uh, summary and place to leave it. Scott, do you have any uh, closing argument, any closing arguments, any closing points? You'd like to make? No, I think that was a great summary by Sam. I think we covered a lot of ground here. People understand 
gotten the idea of where, you know, how uphill athlete and all of us have, as coaches have, have gotten to this point where we're, I want to remind people we're going to continue this process with our other coaches too, because they all have great stories. Um, and then next week, uh, that'll happen with Steve and Mark Postal, and they will be talking about uh, training for and climbing Denali. We know that, of course, it's out for this year, but we know a lot of the folks that come to our website and get in touch with us are interested in training for Denali. And um, Steve and Mark have extensive experience, both guiding and climbing on Denali um, personally. So I think that's going to be a wonderful time, time for them to share a lot of that knowledge with us. So thanks for everybody for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Um, and we'll look forward to, you know, if you've got some questions about that we didn't get to today, feel free to email Sam or myself. That's Scott at Uphill Athlete or Sam at Uphill Athlete. And we'll get back to you with, our, with answers. So yeah. th thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you both for uh, sharing your story. It was really great. I'm sure it will inspire a lot of people. Thanks very much. Yeah. Right. Bye. See you all out there.